0: You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at HolmesAvenue.com. We have made it through the long, long march in Habakkuk, and we have come to the final sermon in our study. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And we're looking at this idea of trust over fear. And I'm going to ask you a rather silly question, I believe, because I, I, want to, I want to ask, have you ever experienced real fear? I know that's a silly question because we've all experienced that. Whether it's been from a close call in a car, whether it's been from a health situation, whether it's been from concern of others, we've experienced real fear, Now, for me in my life, I've experienced moments of fear, but one of the ones that stands out the most is the night that I proposed to Kelly. Now, knowing full well that you don't go into a proposal without a 99.99% assurance that the person's going to say yes, right? But even in those moments, it was nerve-wracking, You know, I had planned everything. We went to a nice restaurant. We had a party set up afterwards. You know, we even went to the beach to do the proposal. I mean, it was everything that she had ever said she wanted out of her proposal. And even in the midst of that, I didn't have a guaranteed answer she was going to say yes. I didn't have that assurance. I felt very, very confident to the point her parents are saying yes. My parents are saying yes. Everyone around us is saying yes. But the most important person... Kelly has not said yes yet. Now, in the midst of that fear, I'm sure Kelly doesn't remember some of those moments, but there was a moment when she stepped away to use the restroom. We were out to dinner, and I had told the, the wait staff when I made the reservation that I was gonna be proposing that night, and the, the person who was taking the reservation said, hey, I'm gonna give you our best waiter. You're gonna have our top guy. He's gonna take care of you guys. We'll throw some extras in here. We are gonna take good care of you this evening. And she steps away to the restroom. And this guy comes over after he's taken of our order and spent some time with us. And I must have looked nervous to him because he proceeds to give me a pep talk of you can do it. He says, these guys believe in you, pointing back to the kitchen staff, all giving me thumbs up. Like you can do this. (laughs) They believed that she was gonna say yes. Or maybe they just wanted me to get out of there and leave a good tip. The reality of that is well, I had almost every confidence she was going to say yes, the struggle for me was that I was afraid because of the uncertainty of that moment. And simply put, that is where our fear comes from. We live in uncertainty of how things are going to turn out. We live in uncertainty of what's going to happen. When we don't know the outcome, we begin to fear. Now, what I needed to do, what I needed to do in that moment was to trust to have faith in the relationship that we had built to that point, to trust in that, that faith, that relationship to calm my fears and concerns. What we're talking about is trusting in light of fear. Here's our bottom line for today. Fear can lead us to have faith in God or it can lead us to distrust him. Fear can lead us to have faith in God or it can lead us to distrust Him. If you're taking notes, I hope you are. I hope you've written that down. But I want to draw your attention to our first point, and that is fearful behavior is distrustful behavior. Look with me at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Fearful behavior is distrustful behavior. Now we pick up this passage in verse 16 and it's coming off the prayer that Habakkuk has just prayed. And he's not waiting for a proposal. He's not asking someone to marry him, but he's still experiencing fear and distress. Remember Habakkuk's journey in this book so far. He begins with a doubt, a concern to God. Why are things going so wrong? And God answers him, this is a part of my sovereign plan. Trust me. And he further expresses his doubt saying, God, I want to trust you, but the plan you've given me is crazy. You've said the Babylonians are going to invade us and they're going to pass judgment upon us. And you're going to use this for your good and for your glory. How does that make any sense? And God explains it even further and gives him answers and details. And that leads Habakkuk to pray what Pastor Brian preached on last week, this prayer that ultimately God's glory would be revealed in this world. The weight of this entire book is resting upon Habakkuk's shoulders now. I mean, it's real for him at this point. He knows this is going to happen. God's been very clear about the coming invasion and what it's going to do to his people. Habakkuk knows the horror of what's to come. And now he finds himself afraid and fearful over the coming circumstances see, Habakkuk writes that he's experiencing physical symptoms of fear here. You know what that fear is like, where your stomach turns, your heart's beating faster, you start sweating. You have felt those moments of fear. And Habakkuk is going through that same experience. It says that his body trembles, and that can mean in the Hebrew that he's literally sick to his stomach. His stomach's in knots. He can't bear it. His lips quiver. I think that... It's pointed to the idea that he is crying maybe even hysterically right now. He's deeply upset. Says so rottenness enters his bones. He's feeling physically weak like he might faint, like he can't even stand up. We know that's true because he tells us that his legs are shaking and he can hardly stand. Habakkuk is terrified. Over what is going to take place and fear begins to consume him. My question for you is what do you do when fear begins to consume you? What do you do when fear begins to consume you? Do you try to think positive thoughts? Do you try to find something to cope with? Do you look for something to bring satisfaction to you in that present moment so that you might take your gaze, your mind off of this impending doom? When we encounter this fear, we tend to look for something to resolve it. Habakkuk begins searching. And as we look at this, I need to take a step back and I need to be clear that I am not condemning fear as an emotion, as something we feel. Fear is a normal, natural feeling. Fear is a part of God's design for us to know when we are being threatened or when we are in danger. It's like putting up the yellow flags of, hey, I don't know if you noticed, but things aren't going right right now. You should pay attention. However, fear can lead us to take some unhealthy and ultimately ungodly actions. Think back to times when you've been in fear, when you've made decisions out of fear and anxiety. Have those decisions been ones that you look back on and said, those were good choices? No. No, they're not. You see, the idea behind this point, what Habakkuk is feeling, we're seeing from the word of God right now is this, is that fear is an emotion that is then followed by an act of the will. Fear is an emotion that is followed by an act of the will. We can feel this fear. We can feel anxiety. We can feel the weight of these things pressing in upon us, but we must then choose how we are going to respond to it. We must choose what we are to do with that fear. You see, it's this combination of of action and emotion that's going to lead us to have faith, to have trust in God, or it will lead us to distrust him. You see, Habakkuk has a choice. He has a choice amid the fear that he is feeling. He has an opportunity to respond He could distrust God and he could choose to try to chart his own path forward. He can look for things to help him cope and navigate through this. Maybe he could choose to isolate himself because if you're alone and by yourself, others can't hurt you. Maybe he would choose to reject change because change is scary and he's already afraid, so why add more to that? Maybe he could choose to live recklessly, finding pleasure in today because tomorrow is not promised. And frankly, he knows what tomorrow is going to bring. So why not enjoy today while it's still today? Any of those responses would be things that we have done, but those are responses that are built in distrust of God and his character. He has a choice to make. He could choose to distrust or he can choose to trust in God and rest in his power and grace. You see, the entire book of Habakkuk is about Habakkuk's fears, his doubts and his concerns and how God ultimately answers those, not with a pithy statement, not with a cute coffee cup verse, but was simply pointing to his character saying, I am the great I am. The God who brought your people through the exodus. The God who brought your people into the promised land. The God who maintained your hold on this promised land. I'm the same God who did all that and will do more. Never once have I broken any promises I've made to you and I will not begin today. If you're reading this text, if you've looked at it, it's ultimately no secret what Habakkuk chooses to do. You see, his fear drives him to trust in God, to cling tightly to him, so this fear will not sweep him away. He chooses to quietly wait for the day of trouble. It's an odd turn of phrase here, but this phrase, quietly wait, in the Hebrew, this can mean to rest To settle down and remain. Habakkuk knows the pain that's coming. He's afraid. He's frankly terrified over what he is going to experience and face in the coming days. But he's chosen to rest in God and fulfill his call as a prophet. He's choosing to wait and do his duty. I'm a, friend, I'm a friend with a, a former chaplain. I guess you can say former chaplain. You never stop being a chaplain is what he would tell me. He was an Air Force chaplain and he shares this story of when he was stationed in Afghanistan. He was at Kandahar Air Base. And as he's here, he is walking around meeting soldiers and as he's going around, he stops by one of the watchtowers to speak to some of the young men who are standing there keeping a watch. And as he enters in his watchtower, he talks to these two young soldiers and they've got their gaze out in the field, looking at past defenses, looking to protect their fellow soldiers. And as this chaplain is speaking to them and engaging with them, he simply asks them this question, aren't you afraid? Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that someone's going to attack. I'm afraid that something's going to happen today or any time when I'm stationed here. I am afraid of what will happen. Aren't you guys afraid? And one of the young men who was on watch, never once turning his gaze from the field that he was watching, said, sir, yes, I am afraid. But rest assured, though I am afraid, if the enemy attacks, I will do my duty. Habakkuk chooses to wait upon God, to rest, and to say that though I am afraid, I will do my duty. I will stand firm on the watchtower and I will fulfill my calling to proclaim the message of hope and restoration to my people. You see, Habakkuk is moved to trust in God. His fear has led him to trust in God. And if that is a response to fear, if that leads us to trust in God, we must ask the question, how can we be like Habakkuk? How can we be like him, trusting and resting in God, standing firm no matter how hard things are, standing firm, willing to do our duty as Christ followers? How can we do that? I believe Habakkuk gives us a, a roadmap of how we can do this. He's showing us that fearful behavior can lead to tr- distrustful behavior. And so, what must we do to find trust and rest in God? Well, the first thing that Habakkuk does, and that's our next point, is that he chooses to find joy in God. He chooses to find joy in God. Look with me at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, Habakkuk chooses to find joy in God. Habakkuk writes these words that I would have to call beautiful and appropriate. These words are a hymn that we can perhaps picture him singing before the Lord in worship in the midst of troubling times. And he's describing what are the effects of the coming war that his people are going to experience, and it's devastating. I mean, he's writing of painful things, but take a step back and consider the realities for Habakkuk society. This is a rural society. It's a bunch of farmers. It's a bunch of people growing crops in fields with livestock that they're tending for. Their very livelihood is found in what grows in that field and what stays in their stalls. And Habakkuk has just described complete ruination. Everything they've ever had is going to be swept away. There's no crops left in the field. There's no animals left to provide for them. They are completely impoverished. Habakkuk is looking at this and he's writing this. Perhaps he's had a a real vision from the Lord. Maybe he's just had God speaking to him directly here, but he knows that everything and everyone that he loves, that he knows is going to be swept away in this coming judgment. He's going to lose it all. This promised land that was so fruitful, it was described as a land of milk and honey, would now see war stop their abundance. What does Habakkuk do with that knowledge? What does he do with that? Well, it tells us very clearly that he chooses to find joy in God during these troubling times. He doesn't tear his robe and mourn, he doesn't scream to the heavens. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk's not stupid. He's not having a mental breakdown. He's not burying his head in the sand. He knows hard times are coming for his people. He knows difficulties are at hand. He cannot escape it. Yet he is done complaining about these challenges. He's finished. He spent this entire book giving his doubts and fears to God, complaining about the situation, and he has finally accepted what God is going to do. He knows he's going to go through hard times. He knows that his people are going to experience hard times, but even in that, these hard times do not diminish the glory and majesty of God. He would find no joy in this ruined land, but he will find joy in the Lord. Yes, we do see that this idea of faith and fear and joy all coexisting together in this passage in this weird, messy union. You might look at that and think that doesn't make any sense. How could that even fit, right? How does joy and how do do faith and fear fit together? How do those pieces work together? You see, we find ourselves confused by statements like that because we have a tendency to get words like joy and happiness mixed up and jumbled together. Don't confuse those two words. They're two different words. You see, happiness is the emotional and physical display of joy in our lives. Happiness is this outpouring of joy in our lives that brings emotion, that brings a physical display of this. Happiness is something that is temporary. Joy is something that is sustainable. It's possible to have this foundation of joy even when the fruits of happiness are not found in our lives. Joy is ultimately the foundation of happiness. It's deeper and it's stronger than happiness ever could be. You see, the reason that's true is because happiness is centered around our circumstances. Think about when you're happy, when things are going good for you. When are you happy? When you've had your cake and eaten it too. When are you happy? When everything is good. You see, happiness is centered around our circumstances. But joy, joy is centered around the promises of God. Joy is not centered around circumstances because our circumstances are up and down like a roller coaster. Yet joy is foundationally, is conditionally centered around God and his promises. That if God is who he says he is, then we can have joy. You know, even just yesterday, we were here for a funeral service for Miss Jan Hankins and Even not even 24 hours ago, we were proclaiming the gospel hope that Jesus is the fulfillment, that Jesus is the one who is going to make all things right, that one day we'll dwell in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus. Why? Because he has paid the debt of sin and shame on our behalf. When you've gone to funeral services, when you've come to funeral services that Pastor Brian and I have been a part of, I know that is the gospel truth that you have heard. But here is why we celebrate that truth. Because even though in the midst of funeral services, in the midst of losing someone, are we happy about losing someone? No. But do we not grieve with a hope? Do we not grieve with a hope that if they are found in Christ Jesus, there will be a day where they will live again. There'll be a day we dwell together with them, rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord. There'll be a day when sin has no hold on us, when death is defeated. This is why we rejoice This is why we find joy, because the promises of God are real and true, and they will be kept. You see, God thought these promises were so important to keep. They were so significant to keep that he was willing to even send his only son, Jesus, to die upon the cross, an innocent man, to bear the weight of sin and shame that we have earned so that he might keep all the promises he made to bring his people to him. You see, for many of us, in the midst of these difficulty and these circumstances, we tend to get caught in a cycle of self pity like Habakkuk has earlier in this book. We walk around going, Woe is me, my circumstances are hard. Woe is me, how could anyone bear this weight? And frankly, that is me centered. That's centered on my circumstances, on my view of the world. That's centered around me and me alone. We might avoid a lot of our anger, our fear, our frustration, our depression, our pity, if our view of the world was focused on the promises of God, not on our circumstances. If our eyes were set to heaven and not the things of this earth, we might find ourselves in a better place to rejoice in the Lord. You see, it's this perspective that leads Habakkuk to his second action in trusting God. This takes us to our third point that we are to rest in God's strength. Look with me at verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, He makes me tread on the, my high places. And he ends with the choir master with stringed instruments. Habakkuk is writing what is best described as a hymn in these last verses. He's sending it to guitar or harp or whatever he's got. And he's playing something as he's singing these words. He's worshiping God through these words. Habakkuk has gone from feeling like all strength has fled him in verse 16 to calling upon the Lord's strength here in verse 19. He was not strong enough alone to face these circumstances, but after encountering and trusting in God, he confessed that the Lord was his strength. In a day of promised hardship and destruction, Habakkuk finds life and victory. He paints this picture for us of a deer running through the mountains. And if you've ever seen a deer run, we're not talking about a little baby deer. We're talking about a real deer. They move with confidence, with athleticism. They're powerful creatures. If you've ever hit one with your car, you know that they're pretty powerful. And this deer that he's describing, it's steady. It's sure-footed. It's strong. It's free. It is unafraid. It's confidently tackling the mountains. Habakkuk is proclaiming that just as this deer runs, so will he. He will trust God to guide his steps and keep him steady. He will trust him and he'll do more than just slowly plod along. He's not just going to mope and moan and I'm eventually going to make it there. No, he's saying I'm going to run in freedom, I'm going to trust in the Lord that in the future he's described, it will come true. If it ain't Jesus, don't answer. Habakkuk sounds like a madman here, if we're honest with you. You hear him speaking and you think, has he lost his mind? He knows the Babylonians are going to invade, he's going to lose everything. Habakkuk, we don't know how his story ends, but he may very well die fighting for his country and his people. He's running willingly into a future that, if we're honest, looks dark and depressing with no hope. Yet he does so full of hope and joy. What does he know that we don't? What does he know that we're missing right here? You see, Habakkuk is submitting and resting in God's strength now. He stopped trying to do it on his own. He's recognized that he cannot accomplish this task, he cannot hold this burden on his own, and he must rest upon the strength of God to make it through here. He knows that the troubles and trials are going to come. They're ordained, they are promised. God has told them this is going to happen. He's going to see these hardships soon. But he also knows that the same God who ordained these hardships and judgments has promised that they will be temporary. The same God who has promised these hardships and judgments, he has also promised that he is going to sweep away those who judge his people. That one day he is going to bring his people home and make things right again. He said, there will be a season where you will be in slavery and bondage. Times will be hard, but when we are through, I will make a beautiful picture, a masterpiece to display to the world of my love for you. You see, what Habakkuk knows, what he understands now is that this final salvation is assured for God's people. It is guaranteed. And he can rest knowing that God is strong enough to bring his people home at the end of this story. Habakkuk doesn't know all the ins and outs and how it's gonna play out. He knows the Babylonians are gonna come. He knows they're gonna be swept away. He knows that they'll be held captive and that one day the Babylonians will be destroyed and his people will be set free. And when they do get set free, They'll be set free as redeemed people who are no longer living in rebellion against God, but who are choosing to walk in faithfulness with him. See, Habakkuk began this book in the valley of despair. He was fearful and afraid. Yet he ends this book climbing the mountains that surround this valley confident and full of courage for you and I we see Habakkuk's story and his experience and sometimes it just feels like we are in the valley of despair as well we look around in the world and we see difficulty we see hardship we see despair and sorrow everywhere we turn Every day it seems like there's a new cycle of news and reports that just simply draw us deeper into fear, frustration, and heartbreak. We look at the world and go, why are things so broken and messed up? See, the answer that Habakkuk received, those same cries he proclaimed almost 3,000 years ago. The answer he received is found all the way back in Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, that the righteous will live by faith. This means that we will trust that God is at work and that he is enough for us. Will your fear lead you to have faith in God or will it lead you to distrust him? Today, my hope and my prayer with you is that you would join with the prophet Habakkuk, climbing this mountain of trust, resting in the promises of God. My hope and prayer is that you would rest in this ancient promise that still rings true today that the righteous shall live by faith. As we consider these words, what does it mean to live by faith? It means to put our trust wholly in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It means resting in his strength, not ours. It means resting in his righteousness, not ours. We are sinners who have been condemned by our own sin and shame. And Jesus, as we look at him, lived the life, the perfect life that we could not live. And by God's grace, by his rich, deep unyielding love for his people. He chose to send Jesus to pay for the debt of our sin and shame. He chose to send Jesus so that we might be declared righteous by God. How? It's because we live by faith, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, resting on his strength, his righteousness, and his mercy. Today, you have opportunity to look upon Jesus and to cry out for his rest, his strength, and his righteousness. In the next few minutes, our worship team will come forward and lead us in a time of worship. And as we do so, we're going to be singing and proclaiming the goodness of God and his grace and mercy. And my hope and prayer is that as you sing, you sing this song as a redeemed child of God, having placed your faith in him, trusting in Jesus as your savior. Rest assured, no matter where you are in your journey with Jesus, he is there and he is ready and willing to meet you wherever you are. There's a Chinese proverb that states, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Let today, your journey with Jesus, begin with one step towards him. If I could, can I go to Lord in prayer for us? Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you looking for trust, looking for rest, looking for hope, Lord. As we live and serve in this world, we wonder where opportunities to celebrate your grace are. We wonder how we are to find your truth. And Lord, as we've come together today, we have indeed found your truth and your joy. We have found your grace and mercy. And it has all been made known to us through the name of Jesus. Father, today as we worship you in spirit and truth, as we celebrate the sacrifice that was made for us through the Lord's Supper, may we proclaim of your great name, may we sing clearly of your majesty, celebrating the redemption you've brought to your people, the forgiveness you've given to your children. So, Lord, today allow us to be convicted of our sin. Let us repent of our sin before you, confessing our struggles and our heartbreak, laying it all before you so that we might be found to be righteous by your work and your will. Lord, we are thankful for you. We're grateful for your grace and mercy. We pray these things in your name. Amen.